Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 9. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named the ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And on their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. Instead of and, uh, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. This is the word of God. So last week I talked about how we are a Christmas people. We are a people who live after meeting this Messiah that Isaiah promises in Isaiah 61, of meeting Jesus, who comes to do what only Jesus himself can do. We live in a hope that looks backwards at the past, of what Jesus came as the anointed one and began. We look in the present at God continuing to work through Jesus among us in the world around us. And we look with anticipation at the future of God returning as the true king to, to bring heaven to us, to renew, restore all of creation. And this Advent, I encourage you to think of three places where you need that hope right now. One, under your own roof, where are the places and uh, spaces within the relationships of your family and those close to you that you want to see God's peace come in this Advent, that you want to find hope there. In our neighborhood, in our space uh, around us, even outward into our country. And then the world. What does the world need hope most? To bring the hope of, of Christ who has already come, who is still at work, and who will renew and restore all things. How can we make this meaningful, not just in this theoretical sense, but in the, rare, the, the places of our lives where we actually need hope the most, as we learn to have eyes to see and ears to hear God all around us. Isaiah 61. Isaiah is a book of bad news followed by good news. The bad news is bad news. It's of a coming devastation of Israel of being sent into exile, of God's temple being destroyed. Followed by good news, but the anointed one will come, that he will bring about a new age, a time when God's laws will be written on our own hearts, that all those who are brokenhearted, all those who are prone to bitterness, all those who have given up on peace will find 
good news in and through the person of Christ. It's good news. The good news always has an edge. It depends on what side of the good news you're on. Like, for example, my son this week had some good news. His good news was in the form of a Nerf gun. So you can see how that was good news for him. It was bad news for the other six of us is that um, we're still finding arrows all over places um, and in couch cushions, behind the couch, uh, in the vacuum cleaner, uh, all these. You know, Nerf, Nerf is a great product. Unfortunately, that's the bad news too. Um, so, but my point is that you know, good news for one is, is often bad news for someone else. And, and to, to make it more concrete, um, if you think of, uh, uh, of a trial, of, a, uh, of criminal violence, of assault, and the judge is about to bring in the, um, the jury to make and issue their verdict, there are, in the victim and the perpetrator, there is only going to be good news for one of them that day. That there's going to, the good news for the victim is that some form of justice has been done, that, that somebody who perpetrated violence is now uh, off the streets, behind bars where they can't harm uh, innocent people anymore. Um, that is what this passage is about. At the, at the heart of it is this idea of judgment, of a final declarative, this is really good news for some, and it's bad news for others. For those who meet certain conditions, great news. For those who benefit from the way the world is in a particular way, it's, it's bad news. It's, a, it's the great reversal. It's, it's vengeance coming. We are, people always say, nobody, nobody talks about judgment anymore. And I, and I say, which news station do you watch? You know, what, what, what's the news channel that doesn't issue judgment against groups of people? Uh, it just kind of depends on which side of the news media you prefer. Um, there is, in Christ's teaching, a command not to judge. Don't take judgment upon yourself. And this is what this passage is about. It's about receiving judgment from Christ, that God comes as a judge, and that he has the final word over what is just and what is unjust. There's, there's no justice without judgment. There's no good news of, God, of God's kingdom coming without that being bad news for somebody else. That in midst of all this, um, the promise is the Messiah will come and offer a final judgment that will bring in a lasting, unending peace. Who is this good news for? Well, since this passage focuses on the good news, let's, let's start there. Let's begin with the good news he has come. And, and when you think about whom is this, who is this good news for? Who receives and welcomes the Messiah with gladness? Um, there is some conditions in here in this passage of people this is really good news for. So let me ask you, have you ever had your heart broken? Do you feel poor? Maybe on the outset you have a nice income and things, but when debts are settled and the life that we're trying to sustain here, do you feel poor like you're just a matter of money coming in, going out, and your life not really changing the way you'd like it to? Do you ever feel like a prisoner? Maybe it's to an addiction. Maybe sometimes you feel trapped in a prisoner to uh, your emotions, to anger. If you've ever uh, had an experience of anger and thought, I kind of lost control there for a moment. Despair. I can't get out of this sadness. If you've ever felt trapped in any of these ways, if any of these symptoms apply to you, you may be entitled to hope in the Messiah, is the good news of this passage. The Messiah has come. 
to set the prisoners free, to heal the brokenhearted, to, to bring joy to those who are grieving, to empty the treasures of heaven to the people of God. Um, that's not only good news, it's the best news you could ever imagine. This part of Isaiah was written at a time when the beginning of a long exile had come. It came at a time when Isaiah and his generation bore witness to the destruction of the temple, to Babylon coming in, besieging the temple, destroying it, taking away all that was valuable, all the gold, everything that was created to serve in the temple in Solomon's generation, taken away, melted, used for plates in the king's court, used to fashion idols, um, the temple destroyed, um, that those, uh, a time when, and when a cruel, brutal nation, Babylon, came in and took people like Daniel and made him a eunuch to serve in his court, took the best and the brightest, came in after siege, killing, a time when people generally wondered, is there any hope? Is there any reason to hope? This passage gave them hope. And I don't want to compare my suffering to theirs, but I do want to be open to the hope they found. Because while my suffering may not be of the same measure and magnitude, if they can find hope in this, then maybe I can too. If a people in exile, a people who had watched their temple destroyed, the space in the Holy of Holies where God's very presence dwelt among his people, flattened, destroyed. Now what? God's home got ransacked, looted. Is he gone? Is his spirit departed from Israel? Who are we now if God's presence has departed? How can we be reconciled to God if the, the mechanisms he gave us require the temple? What now? Can, is there any forgiveness now that the temple's gone? Um, I don't know what it's like to, be, to see the trauma of being displaced by a cruel and barbaric nation. But you know what I do know? I know what it's like to worry about the future for my children. I worry to worry about the direction the world is headed, to feel helpless, powerless of watching on the news, nations trapped in war, of seeing firsthand institutional racism, to see firsthand teenagers trapped in the foster care system, um, bounced around from group home to group home, uh, of families trying to feed their families, their children, uh, it, trapped in cycles of generational poverty, people bound by a broken med medical system, um, having to mortgage their house to pay off um, medical debt. I may not suffer like Isaiah's generation suffered, but I understand a little bit about what that generation was experiencing. And if they can find hope in passages like this, then maybe you and I can too. This passage promises that a Messiah will come back to Israel to restore Israel. For generations, they read this passage, Isaiah 61, in their synagogue. They would hear of the image of the year of God's favor. They would close their eyes as people who were poor, oppressed, who had people unjustly imprisoned in their families that they were, were praying for, uh, that were living in exile. These words, a time coming, 
Well, God himself will send one to bind up broken hearts, to bring a crown of beauty to those in ashes, to bring an oil of joy uh, to a people who are ready and needed some good news. Until one day, in northern Israel, near the South Sea of Galilee, this town called Nazareth, enters a young man, a local boy, Yeshua, Joshua, we know him as Jesus, comes in, takes the scroll, this scroll, Isaiah 61, reads the verses you just heard me reading, and says, after the scroll's been rolled up, placed away, this sermon is very short. It is the words, today, this passage has been fulfilled. Taking all the hope of Israel, all the hope of the world, and said, today, it's been fulfilled. What was Jesus' goal? What was it, as the great poet Michael W. Smith asked, what was his secret ambition? What was it that, okay, my peers are chuckling. <laughs> secret ambition. I'd say look it up, but you don't need to look it up. Oh. What was it that Jesus came to do? This is what he said. These are his words. I have come to proclaim the year of God's favor. I have come to those who have placed their hope on God to intervene, to rescue, to lead out of exile. I've come to bring good news to the poor. I've come to heal broken hearts. I have come to set prisoners free. All these prophecies have been fulfilled today. Imagine what it would be like to hear those words, to hear that scroll read, to join with the generations and generations of faithful people waiting for God to send that Messiah, hearing those words, to fill with a little bit of hope, to hear Jesus say those words. Imagine hearing them if you're poor. Imagine hearing them if you've got a kid in prison. Imagine hearing these words if you were oppressed by, by Rome. You have a, imagine hearing those having your, had your heart broken. When, imagine being in prison. Your dad comes to bring you some food um, and to tell you what's happening outside of those city walls. And he comes in tears and he says, son, I think the Messiah's here. I think, I think we're going to be okay. Jesus claimed that he is the one spoken of in this passage. He is the one set apart. He is the one that is able to bear all the hope of his people. C.S. Lewis wrote that the gospel is all the fairy tales we've ever heard coming true. He writes about how, and this was kind of his niche, as C.S. Lewis was a professor of literature, saying all the stories, the template um, that we've heard of, of the kingdom that falls into disunity and war and, and hunger, waiting for the true king to return, to come take his throne and establish a lasting peace, to drive out enemies, to feed the righteous good king that has been promised for. Lewis says, all these stories that we tell and retell over and over again, 
all the ways that different cultures, different times, different spaces have found different ways to tell the same story over and over again, the story of hope. And Jesus walks into that story as the one saying all those stories emerge from the human desire for God to come, to intervene, and to do what only he can do and bring us peace. All these broken hearts, all these prisoners unjustly put in prison, longing to be set free, a temple in, in rubble, a foreign army occupying the land of God's people, and Jesus walks in and says, everything you've ever hoped for, all those deep longings are resolved in me. Jesus watches as he reads from Isaiah, watches people who have been beat down and beleaguered, hear the words of, of promise of restoration and reconciliation, sitting up a little straighter, little flickers of hope in their eyes. People who are, as Lana Del Rey says, hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me. The risk, some Lana Del Rey fans out there, all right, I know, I know if that was going to land or not. That's kind of uh, impromptu right there. Uh, Hope is a dangerous thing. It's a song about the way that uh, people exploited that hope she had. But that's the danger of hope, is that you'll be exploited. That hope is that thing one feels before one feels discouraged and depressed. Hope leads way to cynicism. And what Jesus is saying, no, it doesn't. Your hope is found in me. I am the promised Messiah. I am the one who has come to take away the ashes and exchange for a beautiful crown. If you've ever grieved and wept, wept and thought, I'm just going to look in the mirror right now at how I look right now. And whatever you see in the mirror as you're, as you're grieving, we all do it. I don't know why we do it, but it's, it's, one, it's something that we all do. Like, I kind of want to see what I look like right now. Uh, and uh, when you look in there, take that picture of, of what the mirror says and imagine Christ putting on you a crown of beauty. The sackcloth, the image of, of grief, of, of a public way of saying, I'm grieving right now. I'm, I'm in a time of, of sorrow. Jesus saying, I'm the one who takes off those, those sackcloths of grief and mourning to clothe you in a garment of praise. Praise is the opposite of grief. For grief laments what has been lost. Praise rejoices at what's been done and been given. Instead of grief, an oil of joy. Generations anticipating the Messiah, like Isaiah's. One generation witnessing the Messiah, as Jesus read those words in synagogue. And then generations like us, looking back on the Messiah with hope that he will come and set things right. So, are you ready for good news? Are you looking for good news that can only be resolved in and through God's direct intervention to heal our hearts, to bring comfort to us in our despair and our loss, to welcome the Messiah. So what I want to do in conclusion, I wanted to do people who looked with anticipation at Christ, wanted to show you Jesus reading those words to his own generation and then receiving him as the Christ. And now what I want to do is end with the last public words that Martin Luther King Jr. gave in his, his famous sermon about how he's been to the mountaintop. It's a, it's a reference to 
Moses not being taken into the promised land, dying in the wilderness, but God in his mercy taking him to the mountaintop to show him what will be accomplished, what land will be theirs. And it's him the day before he was killed, sharing about having been to the mountaintop and having found hope. So I'm going to let him have the last word this morning. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So come to the table this morning. Come as those in need of hope. A hope that is reconciled at the table in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And as you return to your seats, where do you want peace to come? Where do you long for Christ's peace to come into our lives and our world? Take the time for prayer after communion before we close in worship. So let's join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the words of Isaiah that filled one, multiple generations to anticipate Christ, one generation to walk and bear witness to Christ, and many generations to come like ours who look forward with hope of what will finally and ultimately be accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. As we come to the table, fill us with that hope that you will set all things right, that you will bring peace. And as Dr. King reminded us this morning, until that day, may we delight and be content simply in doing your will. We ask for the mercy and grace we need for this in Christ's name.